All right, good morning. So if you came in later, there's notes up here and somewhere else I was told. Sherry's going to hand those out, apparently. Um, we're in Hebrews 11 this morning. Uh, we'll be spending two weeks in Hebrews 11 before we get into that second constitutional Sunday school. Um, but, you know, we'll learn how to persevere in faith first before we get to legal stuff. Um, so Hebrews 11 has often been called the Hall of Faith. I have a feeling most of us are familiar with this chapter. We understand that it's kind of like this museum filled with pictures of what faithful Christians throughout the centuries, mostly the Old Testament centuries, have looked like. And so, you know, I feel like me and the author of Hebrews could enjoy a museum together because he kind of has the same pacing that I do. You know, your first one, you look at the picture and you stare at it. You, you know, look at it, take it all in. And then the next picture, and then the next picture. And by the time you reach in, you know, halfway through the museum, you're like, okay, a hall full of pictures, entire wing of pictures. Like, I'm hungry, let's go get lunch. Let's just be like, okay, pictures, and we're out. Um, that's kind of the pacing of this chapter as a whole. Because if you remember... Hebrews isn't written primarily as a letter to be read um, silently to yourself. It was a sermon to be preached. It was a sermon manuscript. Like I have my manuscript up here. It was meant to be preached. So this is like a very rhetorical section. It's meant to be kind of overwhelming when you hear it. The pace makes sense. Our preacher really gets going. You know, he's sweating. He's hollering. He's like... You know, he's like the, the southern preachers that we have in Kentucky here. Um, Bernice is smiling. She knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's structured rhetorically so that you're overwhelmed with the amount of illustrations of faithfulness. I was telling Jeff this week, I'm like, I feel like right now I'm trying to dissect the rainbow. It's like, let's study yellow a little bit and let's study blue a little bit. And by doing that, you kind of miss the glory of the rainbow as a whole when you start tearing it apart and dissecting just one color. Um, but that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, but I'm going to read the text as a whole, uh, even though we're just going to plop down and kind of get comfy in a few specific verses. Um, like I said, we have two weeks here. This is week one, what faith is. Next week, we'll look at part two, what faith does. We could have done, you know, 1 through 20 this week, 21 through 40 next week. <clears throat> but we're doing it more thematically. Um, and, of course, they're not clean divisions. The author of Hebrews wasn't like, all right, I want to teach two things, what faith is, what faith does. So the lines get a little bit blurry, but I think it's going to be helpful for us. So let me get, um, let me just read this entire text for us so we get a feel for what's going on. Um, and then we'll jump in and see what we can learn. So Hebrews chapter 11, 40 verses, long text. This will take like seven to ten minutes, but it's, it's good stuff. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, 
quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the, caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So, <laughs> right? So let's just remember where we were two weeks ago. You know, this hall of faith is not just dropped in of like, if you want to write a kid's curriculum, go to Hebrews 11 and it tells you the main characters of the Old Testament and then we can move on. This plays a part in the author of Hebrews' sermon in this argument. So in the end of chapter 10, two weeks ago, we learned that, that faith is the hallmark of a Christian. It's the hallmark of one who endures and is, saved, and is saved. It's not, you know, those who shrink back are destroyed, but the righteous, quoting Habakkuk, live by faith. And so we were left with this question, okay, I want to live by faith. I don't want to shrink back and be destroyed. I want to persevere. I want to live. I want to be the righteous one. So what does faith actually look like? What does it look like to be a person of faith? I want to be the kind of person who is able to have joy in the midst of their suffering by faith. So tell me about this faith. Tell me what it looks like. I want to be that person who receives the reward. I want to endure to the end and be saved. So what is that faith? And so we learned several things about faith from this chapter. Um, We're going to cover three of them this morning, and then we'll grab a couple more next week. But I want to kind of come to an understanding of what faith is this morning. So the first thing we learn about faith is faith is a confident assurance in God. So that's not like a full definition, but that's, you know, the part of the definition that's sufficient for what we're trying to do. You know, it's like saying, Dan is extremely good looking. Like, while it's true, it's not saying everything there is about me. I have a great personality, lots of skills, things of that nature. But faith is a confident assurance in God. I get this from verse 1, right? Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This statement about faith, it's parallelism. If you've ever studied, you know, like the Psalms, the poetry, you say the same thing in two different ways, back to back. It's difficult, though, because the word assurance and the word conviction are really difficult words to translate. So anybody grew up memorizing this in the KJV? All right, I'll help us out then. KJV says, now faith is the substance, not the assurance, but the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence, not conviction, evidence of things not seen. You're like, what is it evidence? Is it substance? Is it assurance? Is it confidence? Like, what's going on here? Well, well, the first one, assurance, is helpful because we see that two other places in the book of Hebrews. We've already studied it in 1 verse 3. 
where the author of Hebrews, we have it translated as, it's the exact imprint. Christ is the exact imprint of the Father. Same Greek word there. And then in 3.14, we have it translated again as confidence. We are God's house if we hold fast to the confidence, exact imprint doesn't really work there, uh, of our confession. And so we have kind of this conglomerated mosaic picture of what this word means. Um, it's a full confidence. It's the substance of something that you don't see that's in existence now. And you have this full assurance, this full confidence, this evidence even of what you can't see in reality. It's kind of like, like the deed to my house or the title to my car, right? So... You can't see my ownership of my house. You're like, he has a lot of stuff in there. Like, maybe he owns this house. Maybe he's renting. Maybe he's a squatter. We don't really know what's happening. But if you want evidence of something you can't see, homeownership, then you take out the title and you say, okay, here's the substance of Dan's ownership of the house. Well, the mortgage company's ownership of the house for another 28 years. It's, you know, a proof of things that are invisible. It's this rock-solid conviction of what we can't see. It's a confident assurance in God. So let me say it this way. When we're called to walk by faith and not by sight, we say, okay, I can see things with my eyes. I'm pretty sure, you know, there's a podium here and chairs and, you know, there's bills around me and people I need to care for. But I have a more sure confidence in the things that God says are true. My eyes are giving me truth, but God's giving me a greater, a more overwhelming, a more comprehensive truth that I'm supposed to live my life by. It's believing the promises of God over what we can see around us. It's a firm assurance. It's having the substance of promises that come later, now. It's like taking the future tense but speaking it in the present tense. Um, it's that strong of a belief. Last week or two weeks ago, we talked about, you know, the suffering Hebrew Christians knew that they had a greater promise, a greater inheritance to come. It's the knowing that we talked about. Not a leap into the dark, but a knowing that they had a better and abiding possession. So if faith is this confident assurance I, I asked the question in my mind, well, what separates you know, a true faith from a false faith? Because lots of people have confident assurance in things that are not actually true. How, how's a Christian faith different than that? And that's the object of our faith. That's why I added those last two lines on the point one. I don't know if I ever got a handout, but they're floating somewhere if not. That's a confident assurance in God. We have to trust in God if we want to be people of faith. Look at verse 6, right? Oh, where is it? And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe. Two things to believe about God. First, that he exists. That's kind of baseline, right? If you want to have faith in God, if you want to draw near to God, you should probably believe that God actually exists and you're not drawing near to nothing. And second, that God rewards those who seek them. Is there a goodness that comes from seeking God. If you're going to draw near, you're drawing near to something good. He's going to give you something. Is there a better home 
that he's promised and the one that we have now. We must believe that God rewards those who seek him if we're going to have faith through the most difficult times. Now, you know, believing that God exists, fairly uncontroversial here. Believing that he rewards those who seek him, we'll come back to that in point three. So I'm going to just leave it there for now. But let's just say faith is confident assurance in God. And now let's build a second block on top of that. Kind of we're building a tower to get this full definition of faith. So while it's a confident assurance in God, faith is based on promises of God, not on their own thoughts or desires. I think we often fail at this point, right? Because if someone's in the hospital and they're not healed, we would say it's because they lack faith. Man, if I had just believed God more, if I had just trusted him more, if I had more faith, I wouldn't have lost my job. But that's not what we see in the book of Hebrews. That's not what the Bible teaches about faith. Think back at the end of chapter 10. The the Christians were suffering because they had faith. They had faith and they suffered for it. It's not a lack of faith that brings about suffering, but our faith itself can bring about suffering. See, faith isn't just like, You know, the loose cosmic change that you put in a vending machine to get what you want. You put in a couple faith nickels, touch like E14 in your Kit Kat or your cure for cancer or your new job or whatever it is falls out. No, it's based on God's promises. Let Let me illustrate this. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. Talking about Abraham and Sarah. Even though Sarah was barren all her life for 90 years, And Abraham was, quote, as good as dead, which doesn't say a lot of good things about him, you know. If I walked in and, you know, Bob's like, more than Dan, you look as good as dead. I'm like, that's not a a compliment here. They had Isaac, you know, 90 years old. Most 90-year-old women aren't having babies. As good as dead. They have Isaac, the promised child of faith. So you're saying, if I have enough faith, we can overcome infertility. If I have enough faith and I want a child, that I will get that child? No, that's not at all what I'm saying. Look at this text, right? By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. God promised something. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of the sand by the seashore. The faith that Sarah had wasn't based on her desires for a child. It was based on the promises of God, God's promise that he would give her a son. Promises echoed in uh, verse 12 from Genesis 15 and from Genesis 17 that Sarah, not Hagar, would have the promised child. That It would be Isaac, not Ishmael, who would receive the promises. That Abraham would have descendants, as many as the stars of the sky or the sand of the sea. Faith is based on the promises of God, the promise that God had made. Faith isn't just like this, you know, crowbar that you can use to pry down any door that gets in your way. It wasn't that Sarah had faith and she was able to conceive because of the strength of her faith. She was able to conceive because God came and said, a year from now, you will have a son. And so, against all earthly odds, against everything that, you know, the doctors would tell her and what the physical sight would tell her about her own body, 
what her 90 years of experience have told her, about her good as dead husband would tell her. They acted upon this promise of God. They had faith, and God fulfilled their promise. Instead of a crowbar that breaks down any door, maybe we should say faith is more like a key that unlocks the specific doors that God has given us keys for. Right? This promise key doesn't allow us to unlock every single door that we might run into, but there's a lot of doors that God has given us promises for. So let's say, you know, you're at the financial success door, right? God hasn't given us a promise that says, you know what, you're never going to lack money. You're always going to have a cushy job, a nice house, a full bank account. There's no, no promise that says, you know, by faith, they were millionaires. We don't see that in the Bible. We see poor people in the Bible. We see rich people in the Bible. But no promise saying this is what a Christian should be like financially. Because there's no promise. There's no key that we're given to the door of financial success. But we do have other keys for doors that might be relevant here. Hebrews 13.5, a couple chapters later. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Because we have this promise. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So that's pretty relevant for finances. I will never leave you or forsake you. I know that's true because the author of Hebrews says it is, right? That even if we're lacking in food and in clothing and in shelter and in retirement and, or whatever it is, you know, we can have confidence that God is with us. God's not forsaking us. You know, even if we're suffering now, it's not like God has abandoned us in our financial hardships. No, he's never going to leave me. I can fully trust him to care for his people, even if that care looks like something really uncomfortable that I'm not desiring at the time. I know God won't leave me or forsake me. I can trust fully in him instead of putting my faith in my IRA that I somehow believe faith has built up. So let me make this application point here. How many keys, promise keys, I guess is what we're going to call these, are on your key ring, right? How many doors do you know how to open by the promises God gives us? What would it look like to build up a key ring of faith, if you will, to memorize some promises of God, to search out promises in the Bible, to go and to ransack and plunder the scriptures, pulling out every promise that we need to live by faith in this life so that you can use these keys of faith to unlock the doors and live by faith. Like, if we want to live by faith, we need to have this full key ring of keys. We can't know one or two promises and hope that they're going to get us through every single difficulty and situation. We need to have a key ring like a custodian with tons of keys jingling, saying, you know what, I can unlock every door by faith that God is calling me to because I know what he has promised to give me and to do for me and to do in me and through me. Based on, you know, the two minutes I spent Googling this, on the first page of Google, I saw there's between 3,000 and 7,000 promises in Scripture. And God has given those to us that we may live, that we may have everything needed for life and godliness through faith in him and through the precious promises that God gives. That's my really bad 
recitation of Second Peter one four. Maybe it's First Peter one four. Second Peter one four. It was our VBS theme a couple of years ago, but clearly I don't remember game on. Andrea does though, right? No. All right. Um, <laughs> Having these promises right at our side, right on our hip, ready to go, will help us to live by faith in whatever situation God calls us to. So Abraham and Sarah got a promise from God. They believed the promise from God. They acted on the promise of God, trying for a baby, even though they had no logical reason to. And by faith in this specific promise of God, they received the the, the, the promise. They received Isaac. Faith believed and faith received. Now, before you write that in your notes, you know it rhymes, so it's like, oh, that's pithy. Think about the promise. Did they receive everything? Sometimes you do. They received the son. But sometimes we die still believing in faith, not receiving what was promised. Look at verse 12 again with me, right? What's the promise? Descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. They have one little boy. They don't have the fulfillment of these promises. And yet that did not shake their faith. They went on believing. Even though they didn't see the full fulfillment of these promises, they died in faith. Seeing it and greeting it from afar. That's what verse 13 says. They received the things, they didn't receive all the things promised, but they knew that it was still coming. Even if we don't see the results in this life, we are called to live by faith, trusting in God's promises, knowing that He will eventually fulfill them. That's, right. That's the last two verses, you know, all of these, this entire chapter died in faith because they were looking for the Christ who hadn't come yet. Apart from us, apart from what we have in Christ, none of the promises were fulfilled completely. They had shadows, they had promises, but the fullness comes in Christ. Amen. That brings us to the third point here. Faith seeks the promised good. So faith is confidence in God, specifically in God's promises, and now we're looking specifically at the promised good. Right, so there's this idea out there. I think it's maybe dying a little bit in most of the church, but it's, you still see it out there. That if religion has any thoughts of what's this good, like what's it going to do for me, then it's somehow contaminated. If we're seeking our own good in seeking God, it contaminates religion. It's not, you know, pure and undefiled. We're not actually people of faith. We're not worshiping God. We're just using God for what he can give us. And now I'm, I'm sympathetic with that because I've seen really, really bad gospel presentations where we present the gospel in a way of, hey, if you jump through this hoop, you can get what you really want. I don't care if you want God or not. Jump through this hoop and then you can get what you're truly worshiping. Hey, if you want to see your grandpa again, you need to jump through this Jesus hoop so that you can see him. Hey, if you want to go to heaven and not burn in hell, jump through this Jesus hoop so that you can have salvation. It completely disregards and diminishes the glory and the beauty of Christ, the goodness of what he has done for us. But just because it can be abused, we shouldn't throw away a biblical concept. 
we need to look in a very real sense at what God promises to his people. And we see that God, of course, is the ultimate reward. The goal, the reward, the end, the, 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 the pinnacle of Christianity is getting to be with God, to experience God, to experience his presence, his glory, and his beauty. But he also offers us joy as a byproduct. He offers a possession. He offers a place. He offers fulfillment. He offers satisfaction. He offers rest. And so in seeking for our own good, we seek for the glory of God because in him we find all these other things. That's what I was talking about last time we met, right? When I said in their suffering, they were willing to you know, have their possessions plundered, be thrown in prison because they knew there was something better for them. They gave up their treasures of aluminum to obtain a treasure of gold is the way I phrased it, I think. It's why, you know, the man who found the treasure in the field with joy went and sold everything he had because he was seeking his own good, his own treasure, and he thought, this treasure is worth far more than all my possessions. It's why Jesus tells us to take up our cross and follow him, not because we love sacrifice and pain and misery, but because he knows we're seeking after life. And if we seek it in this life, we're going to lose it. But if we lose our life for his sake, we get a good reward. We get to save our lives. Jesus appeals to that. It's why he says to those who are burdened and heavy laden, come to me. I will give you rest. He holds out this reward of rest before us. He lays before us rewards that are found in him and through him. To the thirsty, he says, come to me. I will give you this water that never runs dry. I'm getting this from verse 6 mainly. Um, let me read it here. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Who, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith is a confident assurance in God based on his promises that seeks this reward. That's, that's a key part of faith. You know, God has every right to say, I created you, follow me. It's going to be miserable. It's going to be joyless. It's going to be drudgery. You're going to hate every moment, but I created you and it's your responsibility to me. God has that right. But instead, in love and grace to us, he says, if you follow me, my happiness, my joy that I have in myself overflows like a fountain. And you're constantly going to be splashed with my goodness, experiencing it all. Seek me and I will give you the greatest delight of your souls. That's the God that we worship. If we're going to draw near to him, we must believe that God delights to reward those who seek him with a treasure that moths and thieves cannot destroy or steal. Again, remember this last chapter of Hebrews 10, 34 through 36. You had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession than an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have a need of endurance, 
so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This idea of reward and promise and receiving is all throughout the book. It's all throughout Scripture. So we have this concept in 11.6. Let me illustrate it in three really quick ways from the rest of this chapter. First, we see Abraham in verse 10, right? Abraham, as you know, was called to leave his hometown, go to a place he's never been, an inheritance he doesn't know what's there. And so he got up and he moved to chase after what is promised. He went to live in a foreign land, verse 9 says. Verse 10 says the reason is because he's looking forward to a city whose builder, and whose architect, is God. By faith, he didn't just obey, you know, begrudgingly. I don't want to, but I guess I will because God said to. No, he says, there's a greater city out there, one that was built for me by God. By faith, he looked to this promise, a promised city that God would provide for him, a better country than what he's leaving. Verse 16 says, it's a heavenly country that God has prepared for his people. Abraham looked forward to a promised good in the city that God would prepare, and he acted by faith towards that reward. And listen, God's not upset that Abraham saw the city and he wanted the city. Because in verse 16, we see God's the one who prepared it for him. And therefore, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. God wants us to desire the things that he offers to us. Or second, Moses. This one's even clearer. Verse 25. You know the story of Moses, you know, prince of Egypt. So, I'm running out of time, but I'm going down the side road. Youth group, I always reference Prince of Egypt, like you're all over in Jeremy, when I talk about Moses, because I assume everybody's seen that. That came out in 1998. It's 22 years old. Like, you're 17, right? That was five years ago. That was 11 years before you were born. So I'm just old there. Sorry about that. Um, But I'm sure you've seen it. You have a VHS somewhere in your basement. Moses had a really cushy position in Egypt, right? He was raised in Pharaoh's household. The king, the most powerful man in the world at that time, was his grandpa, right? Like, I've seen how my dad spoils Ella, and he does not have the power and the means of the king of Egypt. Imagine, you know, when Moses went to see grandpa, what kind of stuff was happening for him? And so he said, if I have, you know, the wealth and the treasures of Egypt, this fleeting pleasure of sin I can have, or I have the reproach of Christ, he puts them on the scales, and the reproach of Christ has a greater weight of goodness to him. Um, Where am I? I lost my place. Look at verse 24. By faith. Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So, sin is fun. Sin contains pleasure. Moses knew that. He grew up in that world. But do I want a fleeting pleasure that lasts a minute, a year, maybe this entire life? 
or do I want an eternal pleasure that's found in God, not in some substance that I have here, but one that lasts forever? And he says, why would I keep this aluminum treasure when I can have the true, great, weighty pleasure of God? It's worth any suffering. I can give up everything that I have in Egypt and suffer with Christ because it's going to get me something better than everything I have given up in Egypt. Christ promises us a greater treasure, a greater reward than this world and than what sin can provide for us. Sin promises pleasure, but it quickly runs dry. Christ has a pleasure that will never end. So Moses, seeking after his own happiness, his own treasure, his own reward, realized, take the suffering of Christ. Don't take the wealth of Egypt because it's going to lead me to a greater happiness. Third example, we have Abraham, we have Moses. Look at verse 35. The tortured some. They don't even have a name here. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Why would you go through that? If you had an option for release, forsake Christ, if it's persecution, and we'll stop torturing you, why would you continue? So that they might rise again to a better life. They saw a greater life before them that comes through faithfulness to Christ. And so they sought after this greater life, this better life, and they persevered in faith through the treasure. Listen, seeking a city or a greater pleasure or a better life is not wrong when we seek these things in God and through God. He rewards those who seek him. So what's this world offering you? What's your sin enticing you towards? Because in God, we have something better. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is the fullness of joy. And on your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The battle comes when we have to decide whether we're going to live, you know, by sight I see the pleasures of Egypt. I see the goodness that might come from seeking after my own glory or seeing by faith. God promises me a greater pleasure, a greater treasure, a greater place, a greater joy. So will I, you know, abandon my appetites here to seek something greater? Am I willing not to eat a microwave TV dinner now so that I have an appetite for the prime rib I'm getting in an hour? It's a giving up of something less so we can gain eternally. You know, we all seek happiness. The question of faith is where are we going to find it? In this world with our physical eyes or through faith do we find our joy in the promises of God? Because faith seeks the promised good. When we're seeking the reward that Christ offers, we're necessarily going to be seeking Christ as we pursue that reward. The, the reward is God himself, but also there are a ton of other blessings and rewards and promises that come with him. So what's it mean to have faith? What's it mean to be a person of faith? We kind of got towards a definition this morning, right? Faith is a confident assurance. We know this is true about God based in God's promises, not just, hey, I really hope that God does whatever, 
brings healing, brings a spouse, brings money, brings health. It's in the promises of God where we have this assurance that God's going to fulfill everything he's promised to us. And in that, we seek him because the promises contain great rewards for us. Faith isn't about giving up stuff. It's about gaining. We give up the worthless to gain something far more valuable because there's a greater joy set before us. So let it be said of us what, what the author of Hebrews said in the end of chapter 10. We are not those who shrink back, but we are those who by faith persevere and are saved. Uh, so let me pray for us and then we can head down to the worship service.